All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks again for coming. Like Spence said earlier, glad you're here, especially if you're visiting, but welcome, of course, to all of you. Good to see most of you back. Um, we are wrapping up today our short, this is, so this is week three of three, in our short sermon series on some of Hiawatha's values and distinctives and core beliefs. Uh, for most of you, this is a good reminder to kind of uh, recenter ourselves on uh, really what the church uh, is in a lot of ways, uh, what we think the church should be, but uh, in some distinctive kinds of ways, uh, you know, who we are, uh, uniquely maybe uh, as, as a church uh, in South Minneapolis in this, you know, part of history and so forth. So, um, so some of these have kind of been like, in some ways, one-off sermons topically, but we wanted to hit on a couple weeks ago uh, God's unchangeableness and how that shapes a church culture, especially in an age where things are just changing so much right now. Uh, last week, Spencer talked about how God's forgiveness changes us and builds community and friendship, which in turn, of course, builds the church up spiritually. And today, I want to talk more about uh, how at the end of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ really is our vision. Like, if you were to boil it down uh, to, we have, we have a vision statement, we have five core values, which um, I don't know if we've actually read that during this sermon series. Maybe that's a miss, I don't know. Uh, but they're important, but they really kind of orbit, though, around Jesus himself. They orbit around the good news of his death and resurrection. So, um, so I chose a passage that we have not preached uh, in a long time, maybe ever actually, it's been a long time if we have, to, uh, from Luke 7, to illustrate how, more, more to you guys how we read the Bible here uh, and how we work hard to see the gospel at the center of every text of Scripture as Scripture does to itself, so kind of following the Bible's lead in that, and then ultimately to show how, how Jesus is just so amazing. Uh, we, um, this, so this might go without saying, but we, we, um, we just want to be clear. We, we don't want it to go without saying. We want to say it. <laughs> uh, and that is that we, Jesus is not a relic to us here. He's, um, he's not an ideal. He is the risen Christ. We love him here. And I know I don't like speak for all of you necessarily. If you're not Christian yet, we're glad you're here and that's great. But for your leadership at least, for the members of this church, we really love Jesus Christ. He is everything to us. Um, he died for us he, he, because he loved us so. And so in, in a lot of ways, then, he himself is our vision because he is the gospel. What he did for us is, is good news. He came to rescue us. And the more, so we would say then, kind of, out of flowing out of that, that, the more you centralize him alone, not adding to him, but the more you centralize him alone and what he's done for us, the more it's going to positively influence your church's culture and way of doing things. So we'll talk more about that later on as well. It's kind of partly why we, um, so I want to get to that too because of the, the um, sermon series we're in here, so. But let's start by reading today from God's Word. Uh, the sermon title is I Am Unworthy. That's a quote uh, from the centurion in this passage you'll meet momentarily. Uh, Luke 7, 1 to 10. If you have a Bible or a phone app want to turn there, uh, that'd be great. But this is all um, on screen here. So let's start in, um, in uh, verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Okay, so... Um, in a lot of ways, uh, this is a really sweet passage. It's uh, very emotional. It's meant to be. To kind of slow down and try to smell the air of what's going on. It, it's, it's, uh, it's deeply em- emotional. Uh, centurion, uh, so in this part of history, Rome had annexed the land, of course, and so they are there and kind of set up their own governors and centurions to kind of keep the peace. This is a, so it's kind of a Roman employee, you could say. Uh, but a centurion, so he's there. He's a non-Jew then. Uh, he, he has a servant he clearly cares a great deal about. And the servant's at the point of death. So in desperation, he sends for Jesus. And he probably had heard that Jesus had healed other people of similar diseases. So he's like, well, if this, you know, work for this guy, uh, another person, um, I'm going to send for him as well. And so in desperation, nothing's working. Uh, he sends for Jesus. And, and Jesus comes. He heals him. But the interaction here that the centurion has with Jesus through, first, the elders of the Jews. Uh, so it's kind of these intermediaries, right? There's the elders of the Jews that go first and kind of ask him to come. Then when Jesus is right outside the house uh, or at some distance, he sends friends to go and say, actually, that's far enough, Jesus. I'm not worthy for you to come any further. Just say the word. And that'll be enough. And my servant will be healed. And, and that's what happens. And, and so there's a lot of joy, of course, at the end. At least it's implied that, um, that this takes place. Um, but the interaction between Jesus and these people are kind of odd. They're pretty unique, actually, to the, to the gospel accounts. You don't see this happen really anywhere else this kind of interaction with these intermediaries and so forth. Some similar things, but not identical. Um, we learn a ton of theology through it, though. Uh, not so much about how to act, but about how grace works. That's really what you end up seeing here. Uh, what is grace? How does it work? And again, we're talking about our church, so this is kind of the, this core element of what we believe here uh, as it relates to Jesus. Um, so we're going to do that today. So I, I have three questions that will kind of help us guide, guide us through this. And I want to start with this one. Is the centurion worthy or not? Is the centurion a worthy man or not? So I would say the passage kind of starts this way, but in a lot of ways our own spiritual journeys start this way too, with a, with a question that's kind of like this or maybe even sort of identically this. Our, our, our journey through the jungle of the gospel, you could say, begins with this question, maybe by, by someone helping us understand our, our inherent blind spots when it comes to like self-awareness, you know, or biblical anthropology, uh, you could say, a healthy theology of sin, things like that. But here's where this arises in this passage. So when the elders of the Jews come to Jesus, they say, this man is worthy for you to come and do this. And they list out all the things that this man had done. He's worthy for you to come heal because he had built us a synagogue and he loves our nation, right? And so they kind of roll out the scroll and, uh, and say, this, he is worth your time for you to come and do this. And then when he gets outside of his house and the friends come out, the centurion says through the friends the the exact opposite. I am not worthy for you to come inside my house. So so what's the question? What what does this passage beg us to ask? Who's right? Who's correct? Is he worthy or not? Are the Jews right or is the centurion right? Is he worthy 
to have this healing done, or is he not worthy? Are his accolades and what he has done for people and for God, you could say, by building a synagogue and loving his people, uh, is that the thing, or is there just a sheer unworthiness uh, in, in play? And the answer is clearly the centurion's right. The Jews are wrong. Uh, the centurion uh, has it figured out. It was kind of interesting, right, that these, these Jewish individuals who sort of had the law, they had the Old Testament, um, don't understand. They don't have a good biblical anthropology. They don't have good self-awareness, understanding of their sin. But the centurion, uh, who knows nothing of the law, who, you know, who was an outsider, actually understands what it means to be a human being. He understands rightly what it means to be a sinner. He understands probably more about who God is, actually, because you have to have that contrast to understand how bad you know, one is or unworthy one is, right? So, but, but anyway, the way this is written, though, there's meant to be that stark contrast. He is worthy because he's done so much, and yet I'm not worthy for you to cross the threshold of my home. Stark opposites, they can't both be true. Uh, of course, the first is not from not just the passage itself and the way it flows after this, but from what the rest of the Bible says about our unworthiness before God too. Notice Jesus never responds as well. It's partly why we know this. Jesus doesn't hear from the Jews and say, ah, yes, the centurion, uh, so worthy, uh, so therefore let me come to him, right? Like that's not, that's not the response. He just, he just goes. And if you didn't know this about Jesus, Jesus has this amazing way of not responding to the stupid things that people say in front of him sometimes. Uh, and, and this is one of them. Uh, the, the Jews are, are um, quite, uh, just quite honestly being stupid. Uh, theolog- they, they're, they're blind. Um, theologically. And, but Jesus is gracious to them, you know, by not making them feel terrible, I guess, right, you could say. But there's a lot of grace for us in this too, because we have the same posture and the same ways about us. Uh, but again, Jesus goes to the centurion only to hear him say through his friends, I, I am not worthy. I would actually say too, from what we know from the rest of the New Testament, it's not a stretch to say that Jesus probably would not have gone to him if he would have thought himself worthy, because as he, has, as he says in Mark 2, he came for the sick. Uh, not, the, not the ones who think they're healthy, right? So um, not that he doesn't have this, this universal, broad love for all, um, but it's not a stretch to say he wouldn't have gone if, the, if he wouldn't have known from afar, as the Son of God, the heart of the centurion and where he was at with all of this stuff. Uh, in that sense, the centurion and his almost dead servant are kind of one and the same. The servant is sick spiritually, the centurion, sorry, physically, the centurion sick spiritually, and he knows it. He knows it. He knows he's a sinner. As a centurion, he's probably guilty of all kinds of atrocities in service to Rome, uh, murder just being one of them, uh, probably. Um, and, but, but this is how the Bible tirelessly presents us. We are the centurion here. Uh, us and our relationship to God. God does not respond to our inherent worthiness or our acts of piety, uh, none of us can lift Thor's hammer. Uh, but, but he comes to us in spite of our unworthiness. He comes to us in spite of our, uh, you know, our, our acts of piety, whether they're good or bad, in love. And, and what, like we were saying earlier, what a scandal. This is scandalous stuff here. It's, it, and not just that, so let's turn this to us for a second. It's a scandal that Jesus would take one step towards us at all. And yet we know from the gospel that he traveled a billion miles. And all in love, uh, because, not because we were worthy, but, be, but because he wanted, right? He wanted to do, to do this, and in spite of our sin, to save. 
All right, the next question I think that helps, sort of flowing from the first one, is who is doing the heavy lifting here? Uh, and part of what makes this passage so unique to other parts of the gospel accounts is that the centurion sends, like I was saying before, sends for Jesus. Then when Jesus starts to get close, he sends out his friends saying, don't trouble yourself to go any farther, just say the word. Um, this ne- if you don't know the Bible that well yet, just know that this doesn't happen that often at all. Uh, we actually, you know, we, we do see a lot of close interactions that Jesus has with people, a lot of like, you know, laying of hands and different kinds of uh, things, close conversations. This is a very unique thing, you know, for, for the centurion to send, but then to say, actually, when you're 200 yards out or something, um, no further, just, just speak. And then that'll be enough. Uh, the, the centurion statement, I did not presume to come to you, uh, this is where I start to think we start to see some gospel motifs come out here as well. Um, because that's basically the same thing as saying, I needed you to come to me, right? I did not presume to travel to you, um, but we know, of course, that, that Jesus comes to him, right? Like, I needed you to come to me, and so he sent for him. Uh, and and that, that is a, a central component to the gospel right there. Uh, we don't go to him with our, our acts of goodness, but he comes to us in spite, in spite of them, kind of like we just mentioned in the prior section. But movement matters theologically. When you read these stories, it's why, one of the reasons why I love narrative so much, uh, sometimes even more than just kind of prepositional stuff like in, in the letters, though I love that too, of course, is you see things shown to you rather than said. So movement matters in these stories. Who's doing the traveling? Who's doing the sitting? Who is actively working and who is receiving? And in the, in the big picture, it's really Christmas that tells us ultimately that God had to come to us because we were too spiritually immobile. Uh, that God had to come all the way down to us to be born into our plight and, and to eventually die as one of us. Or, quote-unquote, the Word made flesh, right? As John 1 says, uh, the Bible says elsewhere, the Word made flesh is, is what we needed, uh, the spoken Word to come to us. And, and that, to, to wrap up this section, that's actually uh, an easy-to-miss nuance here that I don't know if you noticed this or not, but um, if you think about how this would have looked, you know, if Jesus is approaching the house and the friends come out and say, stop, that's enough. But if you just say the word, um, Jesus stays out. So if Jesus is here and the home is here, Jesus stays outside the home. But actually something does still proceed from him, doesn't it? And go into the home. Like what still proceeds from Jesus to go in and to do the healing? His word, right? The spoken word still goes forth. That's the idea that you get here is Jesus himself in the body stops but the spoken word still enters the threshold of, of the home. This is like the idea in the Bible where it says, uh, for us, the word of the gospel has come to us, uh, the book of Galatians says. It's, it's like it's uh, personified. Uh, the word of the gospel has traveled into the home of your heart, and it, it has, through a person maybe, or the open pages of scripture, through a sermon, a song, it has come to you. You didn't travel to it. It has come to you, the word of the gospel. Or in the book of Acts, where it says the phrase, the word grew and multiplied. You remember that if you've read Acts before, how it says that repeatedly? All this stuff's happening, bad stuff sometimes, but it says, ah, but the word of God was growing. The church is being persecuted and, and spread out. The word of God, though, was growing and multiplying. It was doing its thing. Uh, you get this sense that the word of God's just doing what it wants to do, no matter what, no matter what else is happening. Uh, it's that kind of idea, too. So we see it in plenty of places scripturally. Those are just kind of a couple others. But 
But the idea, again, is that the preached gospel word, this is where this starts to matter for us uh, additionally, the preached gospel word is what truly heals, right? Um, and it, I, would, I would say this, this story, it's kind of cool because you see almost an allegory here, um, maybe a literary device employed by Luke. You see that what rises above Jesus' physical healings is the word, the preached word of the gospel. That's what you start to see here imaged. And, and so we know that like later in the story, this is, on, they're on the cusp of that here, the dawn of that era where the preached word is what's going to save, you know, not just the physical healings of leprosy and in this case, we don't know what the servant had, but whatever he had. It's really the preached word of the gospel that says if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved from your sins, your true spiritual sickness. That's what's starting to be hinted at here. Jesus stops with his body, but the word goes forth. That's kind of what you see when he dies, rises again and ascends, but, he, but he's with the church, right? And the church preaches. This is why we as a church, we value spiritual healing more than physical healing. We don't put all of our eggs in the basket of people being healed of their migraines or their cancer. Though we'll pray for that, that's not your hope or mine. And that's not the Bible's hope either here. What, what's being suggested is that a time is coming where Jesus' physical healings would stop or at least you know, cease maybe their central role, but the word would go forth. The word of the gospel would continue on and bring true healing from our spiritual sickness. All right, so, uh, and I th I'd say for us too, then to kind of cycle back, circle back to um, verse 7, which is up here. This is a great prayer. Um, I, I think that the era that's being forecasted here is not just one where the word the gospel word would supplant physical healings uh, in some way. But I think it's also like an era is coming when we would pray this too. I mean, because probably all of you who are Christians have prayed this, right? And I, I would encourage you to pray it more. This prayer of, Jesus, I don't presume to come to you. I don't presume to have it all together. I don't presume to be good enough. Uh, but I would ask that you would come to me afresh today, that you would... Uh, as, as John 1 talks about, that you would uh, tabernacle, that you would set up the tent of God in the world, but in my heart, that you would dwell within me, dwell within me, among us as sinners, but within us, that you would save me from my sins. Um, that's kind of what the centurion, kind of probably unknowingly, is starting to pray. He doesn't have it all figured out, of course. All the dots aren't being connected. But say, I did not presume to come to you is a, a, a loaded theological phrase, uh, ripe with proper understanding of what the gospel is. That's partly, I think, why Jesus is so blown away. Like, what is going on? We, we don't have any, we don't have this even in Israel. And they have the scriptures and prophecies about me uh, coming later, but the centurion. So it's this really cool glimpse into Jesus' humanity, too, I think, is that not just a God, but as a human like us, he is um, having this, uh, this response, too, that should make us look and that's where I want to kind of turn, I want to turn next. Uh, and that the third question is, where is faith found? So um, from verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion. Turning to the crowd, again, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so um, I think, I like how the passage ends because I, I think we're, the, the passage leaves us with this lesson, I think, more about faith than about healing. You know, because 
The healing happens, of course, and of course we can glean tons of theology from that. We've been talking about that. So not to set that aside, but just to say really what the trajectory of the passage really has to do with faith. Faith is dependence on God or trust in him. I think that's really the key, the key factor here, uh, which is, again, why Luke takes the time here. Uh, God threw him, of course, ultimately, but takes the time to note Jesus' surprise in his, uh, his response. It, it's almost like Jesus seems more amazed at the centurion's faith than the centurion is about the healing, right? At least how it's written, right? We don't get a lot of like, whoa, um, it worked from the centurion or something. My plan worked or something. We, but we get with Jesus, it's like that's the response we get is, wow, look at this faith. So, and the key phrase here is uh, not even in Israel, uh, right? He's not just saying, wow, this faith. He's turning to crowds and saying, this is a teachable moment. This is a moment where I want you to hear this, um, not just to see the healing, but not even to many Jews probably who are following him, not even in Israel have I found such faith, which I think does a couple of things. It's, it, I mean, it obviously highlights the centurion's ethnicity. He's a Gentile, not a Jew, um, which in turn is meant to highlight, though I, I think in on one sense that the gospel is getting ready to burst forth the nations. We have, we're kind of on the cusp of that time, right? Pentecost is almost here, um, sort of. But I, I think you also get this sense that the gospel goes to people apart from Old Testament law. Because Israel had the law. Uh, And the centurion, of course, knew nothing of God's commandments, yet healing came to him simply because he asked. So it's sort of like the the question might be, wait a minute, Um, Israel had God's commandments, they had had the word, the prophecies, but the law, if the question might be, if if the law didn't produce faith, then what's going on here? Like, if we ask the question, I mean, did the law produce faith? The answer is no. Uh, but if it did, Israel would have the highest of faith because they had the law. But you get this sense in the story then that they're separate. Um, faith and trust in God and trust in his grace, this like, you know, line of that here, runs concurrent to the law in the Old Testament, but they're separate, they're not blended. That's the sense we should get, I think. It's not even in Israel. People who, who have the law, and they're called that actually elsewhere in the New Testament too, so we, and we know that from the stories, but um, not even there. But you have it with this man who knows nothing of God's commandments, yet um, healing came simply because he asked. It's crazy. It's unbelievable, unbelievably amazing. We, we, I mean, I take this for granted, I'm guessing, maybe some of you guys do too, but it, it, wherever you're at, unbelievable that this is the case. I can be saved because I ask. I, I can ask and receive. Um, and it's not at all dependent before, during, or after on me performing or being good or keeping God's commandments. Like, what is going on? It, it is that scandalous. Um, it reminded me in John 7, where it says, kind of similar thing, where it says the religious Jews, kind of a crowd again following and, and observing something. Uh, it says, but this mob, so they're being derogatory. This mob that follows him, that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So, you know, these Jews are saying, but there's this mob of people, they know nothing about the Lord's commandments, the laws that we keep so faithfully and well and that we memorize. Um, there's a curse on them because of that. So, okay, so much going on here. The, the, first of all, the irony is the curse is on people who try to keep the law. 
We know that in Scripture, right? If you seek to keep it and don't, because no one does. Uh, cursed are those who seek to keep God's commandments, because you can't. I mean, again, uh, man, one of the major benefits of reading the Old Testament is to start to understand that you can't, that no one can. Uh, the second you promise is the second. I mean, think of, um, is it the end of Joshua or somewhere in Deuteronomy? I forget where exactly it is, but where the people promise uh, we, will, we will keep the law, we will be faithful, we will, we will do all of this. And then uh, the response from, I always forget Moses or Joshua, but um, where they say, you are witnesses against yourselves. You, you have just witnessed against yourself that you can keep this law by, by promising, vowing, and this is the same for all of history. Things don't change when you become Christian. You don't enter this era of now. Now you can make promises to God. Now you can keep his commandments. Okay, so transformation comes through his love and through his grace. But not all of a sudden, oh wow, now the law is working. That's not what it teaches. That's not the hope of the prophets. Um, okay, this is a huge digression. But back to, back to John 9, or John, John 7. The irony is that the Jews are under the curse because they're under the law. Okay? That's the first thing. Um, but this is, what, this is what Jesus does. He attracts those who know nothing of the law, but who know their need, and who have faith. Uh, you know, I, I've said this, we said this before, I'll, I'll say it again to um, speak strongly and just make the point. There will be good people in hell and bad people in heaven. And you know why that's the case. And I'm not saying like wholesale, there'll be good and bad people in hell and good and bad people in heaven. But do you know why that's the case? It's because the crux is Jesus. It's not the law. It's not what you do. Right? I mean, it shouldn't even be a question for us. It shouldn't be a debate. There will be bad people in heaven because I will be there. I'll just say that first of all. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll at least be there. And I'm a terrible person. All right, but, and so in one sense, you could say, well, there are no good people, and we'd say amen, right? But um, it, the point is, though, Jesus is the crux. At the end of the day, Jesus is the one who, I mean, either we're purified and considered perfect and righteous by his blood, or we aren't. Centurions will be there, and the, some, many of the Jews who had the law and were outwardly very good people will not be. So, right, and, and there's, so there's this upside, there's this flipping around of what it means to be good, that Christians sort of like have, we have to almost relearn that. Uh, to be good is to be close to the one who is good alone. To be holy is to be close to the holy one. This is actually an Old Testament truth as well, by the way. Uh, it, holiness was in the holy of holies. It was, a proc, it was a, like a proximity thing, right? So, I mean, to be holy was, was to be close to that central part of, of, of the temple, but that's Another Sunday sermon, I guess. But um, it, it's the same now. To be good is to be unified with the good one. Remember, Jesus says, no one's good but God alone. So how, how are we good? I mean, goodness does not come from what you do. It comes from being close to Jesus. And the only way we can be close to him and reconciled with him is through his bloody death among criminals, where he substituted himself in love for you and me. That's it. And constant every day eating of that manna bread truth repetitiously and monotonously and finding joy in it. That's your life. If you want to grow in your faith, go deeper into the gospel, not past it. Deep, take a deeper dive, much deeper dive. 
and none of us have gotten to the bottom because you can't, right? But go deeper. So in this, the centurion is a picture of us, saved by grace, not by works, uh, by faith, not by law, by spirit, by the flesh. Those are the three New Testament dualities that kind of say the same thing. Um, and yet there's another centurion in this story, uh, if, if you think about it, and it's Jesus. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, if you think about like him, and, I, and I, you get it actually from verse 8, where, you know, where he says, the centurion, I didn't presume to come to you, say the word. Uh, but then verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority. So do you see how the, the centurion likens himself to Jesus? Do you see that? The centurion's saying, we're a lot alike. I too have people, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm a, a man in authority, right? You and I have similarities. I too have these truths that are about me. And so with that little interpretational nudge, I'll call it, we, we can also look at the centurion as a picture of Christ as well because in the end, it's not just the centurion who highly values his servants. It's Jesus, the true centurion, who highly values you and me, who are lying motionless on the sickbed of our sin. This is one of those places in the Bible where manner, not just matter, comes at the forefront. Not just that Jesus died for you, but that he wanted to. Do you guys know that? This is where you start to see it. When the true centurion kind of comes up, as you see, well, if the centurion highly, highly values this guy, how much more does Jesus highly value, highly value you and me? It's amazing. And he does. He loves you. He wants to save us. Uh, remember where it says that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd? Or remember like in, in Matthew 13 where Jesus says, um, it's a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Well, maybe we're not the man. Maybe in this parable, you're not the guy who finds the treasure. You're, maybe you're the treasure. And Jesus is the man who finds you and then it makes more sense in some sense because then it means then he sells everything he has. He gives away his entire life. Everything for you. It's the epitome of scandal and it's the epitome of love, right? Because you have never given everything away for the gospel. And let me just free you up for a second, guys. You never will. You never will give up everything perfectly for the gospel like this is saying. You just won't. And that's not the point. Now, in some sense, we do, we make shifts, right? We repent. But this is bigger than that. This is saying the kingdom of God is like someone who gives up everything. And the kingdom of God, then, is like Jesus giving up everything for you and me and spilling his blood in the biggest of injustices ever on that cross among criminals, on a Roman cross in excruciating pain. So the way he does all this, again, to transpose the centurion kind of on top of this, some of his words, um, Jesus did trouble himself. The centurion said, don't trouble, trouble yourself. Well, the gospel says, actually, that's not right. Uh, Jesus does trouble himself. And he does so on the cross. And he does so for our healing. See, if, if the centurion's words can also be applied to Christ, and if we know that Jesus does trouble himself later in the story, then 
part of what this passage is saying is that God is saying to you and me, don't trouble yourself. So see, the, the gospel is not asking us to trouble ourselves. Like as if our suffering, you know, or us doing something, our asceticism matters at all. It doesn't. It won't get you an inch closer. But if God troubles himself, see, that changes everything. If the Son of God troubles himself on the cross, then that completely bridges everything. I want to say it again. I'll make sure you guys are hearing this because some of you have never heard this before. Jesus doesn't ask us to trouble ourselves in order to be saved. Jesus never asks us to trouble ourselves in order to be saved. Every other religion in the world does, except Christianity. Christianity is unique. Um, It says, don't trouble yourself, but believe in the one who was cut and nailed through, stripped down to, to being naked, cut up on the back, crowned with, crowned with a crown of thorns and crucified uh, for, for you and me. And he did so, again, in, in, in love. Uh, Mark 14, Jesus says, why do you trouble her? You know, again, Jesus talks in these terms, right, to the woman who anointed him. Uh, Acts 15, James says, uh, this, is, this is actually really, man, this is a whole other sermon. I can't go too deep here. But James says, therefore, my, as a Jewish man, Jewish Christian, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles to turn to God. In context, that's saying, we should not add laws, required law-keeping, onto their spirituality. Remember this counsel? It's actually James. The guy who wrote the book of James is saying this, which is fascinating, too, if you know James. James is saying, we should not, for Gentiles who are coming to faith, we should not add uh, lawful requirements on them. That would, be a trou- that would trouble them. See, in the same way, guys, the, the, uh, post-conversion, your life is not should not be understood as a trouble, a troublesome thing, you know? I mean, life won't always get better either, necessarily, but in terms of, like, what's expected of us in, in some sense, we will not be troubled by being yoked with a law that could never be kept. So this is what Peter says earlier in the passage, right? Why would we trouble the Gentiles with things we could never keep ourselves? And as Christians, they're saying that. So a lot of people say, well, yeah, that was true for the Old Testament, but now it's different. No, this is post-resurrection. These are the apostles, flipping through their their Old Testament, saying, okay, well, what laws still continue? And they basically said, well, nothing. We don't want to trouble them. And so their their letter back to them was like, Jesus is enough. Uh, Love your your Jewish brothers who are growing in this area, so maybe don't eat bacon for a while. That's kind of what they say. Um, You know, don't don't commit sexual sin and then believe in Jesus. (laughs) So, And then it says they rejoice. They're like, oh, this is a good letter. You know, if they cut and paste the whole Old Testament law into a letter, that would have been troubling. That's what what this is saying. But anyway, just love that the word trouble is here as well in Acts 15. And and it means the world for us too uh, as as Christians now in this part of history. All right, always more to say, but let's just uh, start to wrap up. How does grace then shape a church culture? These are just things I think that came to mind this week as you think about if all this is true, this kind of radical grace, um, it's going to lead to this kind of church. It's going to lead to a church that basically has a good kind of brokenness um, to them, healthy self-awareness. It's going to lead to dependence and prayer, faith, trust in God alone uh, for the forgiveness of their sins, gospel centrality, being okay with messes, distancing ourselves from legalism tirelessly, 
uh, unity. It'll create unity. Um, the, the, the statement, I am unworthy yet loved. Uh, so, grace exists like pool water on the, on the barriers of those two statements. I'm unworthy and yet I'm loved. And if you take out one of those sides, the pool water of grace spills out on the ground and spoils. Both are true. But a lot of times our theology only banks on one. Uh, we're unworthy completely and yet somehow, crazily, and there's no rationale for it at all, Jesus walked towards our home and he spoke a word and saved us from our sins. And then patience and humility too with each other. I'll close with this Spurgeon quote. Um, this is actually a vision of what we want to see happen, by the way, in Hiawatha. If you're new to our church, this is what, by God's grace, we kind of have, but we always pray for more. Uh, so he who grows in grace remembers that he is but dust, and he therefore does not expect his fellow Christians to be anything more. He overlooks 10,000 of their faults because he knows his God overlooks 20,000 in his own case. He does not expect perfection in the creature, and therefore he is not disappointed when he does not find it. And I would add, nor is God, nor is God disappointed because we are covered by his blood alone, uh, not by our works. Guys, I'm going to pray here in a second. At any point during this last song, if you'd like to take communion, I'd encourage you, if you're a Christian, uh, to remember Jesus' body and blood today with us uh, during the last song or after the service. Uh, let me pray, though, to close and invite the band up, and we'll wrap up. Jesus, thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you so much for our church, uh, for your word, God, for always just recentering. Uh, people like us who wander, who don't understand, um, who don't really know what grace is. Um, you tell us. You, you, you say this is it. This is what it is. And this is um, what it can do. This is the power that's in it. This is how it can shape a church. This is how it can save you. Um, God, so we thank you for um, speaking the word of the gospel, for saving us from our, our spiritual death and sickness, and um, for not troubling us, but troubling yourself. That, that we might be saved. Help us to sing, to remember through communion, to rejoice, and to leave here at peace with you. In Christ we pray, amen.